This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Cavalry Audio. I'm Clint Emerson and welcome to season two of Can You Survive This Podcast? Where the interview is just as dangerous as the scenarios I put my guests through. From hostage situations to natural disasters, carjackings, active shooters, and more, if you're looking for the skills necessary to survive these situations, then this is the show for you. Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Clint, and thank you for listening to another episode of Can You Survive This Podcast? We are doing a compilation of the greatest hits, if you will, of the past. And we thought, hey, why not give you a taste of the best interviews you may have missed, the best survival stories and tips you may not have paid attention to last time. So hold on and get ready for Can You Survive This Podcast's Greatest Hits. Enjoy. The differences between the SBS and the SAS, and uh, we know that the SAS is kind of the more popular one that we've heard about for decades. You guys, or they were the, I mean, heck, I, I look up to them, looked up to them throughout my career. You always hear things about, you know, the Brits, the Brit, you guys have been doing it longer when it came to counterterrorism. You had all the experience for a very long time. Um, but what are the really the big difference between the SAS and the SBS? You know what? The only difference between the two, we do exactly the same selection process. So there's a there's only one tier one um, sort of organization, and that's the SBS Special Boat Service and the SAS. The SBS is the Navy Special Forces, yeah, um, and the SAS is the Army Special Forces. So um, exactly the same uh, selection process, and that at the end you can sort of pick and choose where you want to go. You know, I was an ex-Royal Marine, so we stay loyal to the Navy. So I stay loyal to to the Navy and went SBS. And normally the Army, if you're ex-infantry or parachute regiment or whatever it may be, you stay loyal to the Army and you go to the SAS. Um, but they're almost exactly the same. But we lead with um, maritime counterterrorism and the uh, SAS lead when it comes to land options. But in a couple of years, Clint, I think that everything will amalgamate into one fighting unit you know this whole yeah. tier one will just amalgamate into into one fighting unit because we do exactly the same um selection process and we as the sbs we led out in afghanistan you know there's not much water in afghanistan but that was yeah. our territory for 15 years and for the sas it was iraq so mm. now you know we come from the air we come from land we come from water you know i would say that the special boat service has the the slight advantage of um being versatile you know we uh we spend a lot of time on the water you add water to anything as you know clint it can become a complete cluster fuck right it can really really mess things up and if you can operate on water and with water around you underwater on top of it then you know you can pretty much operate anywhere in the world that's what i what i believe um so we have that advantage of just you know that maritime training and also, you know, when it comes to land stuff and you're nice and dry, um, you always sort of thank your lucky stars that you're not, 
you know, wet, cold, and miserable before you start a task. <laughs> yeah, no doubt about that. And that's a great explanation. So, you know, for, for American listeners, really, the SBS is equivalent to SEAL Team 6, and the SAS is equivalent right. to, like, Delta Force. And, Absolutely. and it, the reality is, is we, we, the United States military, have mirrored a lot of our organizational structure, terminology, I mean, you name it, tactics, uh, based on you guys. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a cool history. You know, it was, it was amazing to me the other day to see it in social media. You know, we just celebrated, I think it was, uh, the Navy's birthday several months ago and it was, you know, 200 and whatever years old. And then I saw, uh, the Royal Marines birthday and it it's a hundred plus years older than our Navy, <laughs> you know, 300 and yeah. something years old. And, you know, it's very telling that, uh, you know, the, the power and the longevity of, of the Brits and you guys being around for so long, it's pretty cool. Um, but we work closely with, we, you know, with team six with dev group. Um, we've adapted a lot of drills, especially in that Afghanistan era. Um, we've worked very yeah. closely with dev group and, We've adapted a lot of drills, you know, from the way we enter buildings, the way we fight from the door now, the way we fight from windows, the way we, we roll um, into certain tasks, um, vehicle interdictions, you know, Afghanistan, you know, that sort of came into place. And the drills and skills that we've adapted has been jointly with Team Six, you know, so we work ever so closely together and we've adapted this sort of new age modern warfare through American um, through the Americans yourselves and through the Brits. So um, even though we might be older in in our organization, um, we work very, very closely together and we've come up with a highly effective operational close quarter combat drills and skills mm -hmm. um, intertwined with with Dev Group and, and Team Six. So, you know, we can't take all the uh, all the glory, but <laughs> right now it is 50-50 it is yeah. and, um, you know, we, we do uh work closely together and adapt um everything that we do uh to fit a modern day battlefield yeah no doubt about it i've uh had the opportunity to work with all you guys and it's uh it's always professional and uh and a fun experience with that just like you do i get lots of questions about buds right basic underwater demolition seal training what's the hardest part what's this what's that so for our listeners selection for you guys what are like the highlight you know we have hell week and we have pull comp and then we go out to san clemente island where people can't hear you scream and that's where you uh get even further uh you know torture of different sorts but um what are the highlights of selection that you know most people like fear or that anticipation of death is worse than death itself type moment what was it for you or what is the more popular one popular parts of selection it's broke down into stages. So the first four weeks of selection is in the Brecon Beacons. Um, and it's called the hill phase where you carry extreme weight on your back over extreme distance and you're timed along the way. And you have to meet certain criteria, certain time uh, restrictions. And in the first four weeks, 70% of the course um, is gone. In those wow. first four weeks, because you're up, you know, four 4.30 in the morning, you're sat on your Bergen, in the Brecon beacons, it's pissing it down. You've got the big four ton of lights that are shined upon you. The chief instructor comes out. All you can see is his shadow. And he's telling you, because you're just a number, he's telling you what number to get onto what wagon. Um, and he gives you the opportunity every morning to VW because um, you don't know what march is ahead of you. You don't know how long you're going to be out on the ground for. And the first four weeks is just gets rid of the dead wood. Because a lot mm. of people, they go on selection just for the kudos. You know, they get on selection and they come back, go back to their unit and they've oh, been on selection. And it sort of does boost their career a little bit. But the first four weeks is just all, you know, oh, it's just humping and, 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 you know, getting across the Brecon Beacons, which is, you know, disgusting. You get four seasons in one. It's, 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 it's horrendous the first four weeks. But when you get past the first four weeks, that's when the course starts. Mm. So you've lost 70% of the course. 202 people started my course. I think 34 of us. Um, got to the next stage, which which is the jungle phase. So you do jungle training and it's six weeks long. So you do two weeks of sort of beat up jungle training. It's, it's you know, horrendous. And then you go and fly out to Brunei for, for four weeks and you conduct um, live exercise, live rounds, break contact drills, um, evacuation drills, um, camp attacks, you name it, all live ammunition. And that's more to see 
how you operate under extreme sort of pressure and fatigue with live ammunition, mm. how safe you are. Because we both know the moment you get one tick for one safety element, you're off the course. Now, when you're in the jungle for four whole weeks and you're being assessed with live ammunition, break contact drills any time of the day because all you're doing is patrolling. And then at the end of that phase, you do 10, 10 days of a proper final X. Um, again, you lose another half of the course, just mainly due to uh, self-induced pressure where they've made a mistake. And it might not be a safety mistake, but they've made a mistake. And, you know, the, the DS don't tell you anything. So you plant that seed of doubt yourself and you go, right, you know, I'm not going to pass this phase. So there's no point in carrying on. And a lot of people VW in the trees, in, in the jungle. But um, again, you make one safety mistake, you're off. So that's the second phase. So that's all about soldiering. And then you've got the escape and evasion, which is the third phase, mm. um, which again is, you know, in the highlands of Scotland, no one can hear you scream. No one can hear you talk. You're on the yeah. run for a whole week um, before you get captured. You know, you get to a final RV, double agent, et cetera, et cetera. And then you go through a three day uh, interrogation process. Um, and then once you, if you pass that, then that's the bulk of selection done. That takes about four months. And then you go on to continuation training, which again is another two months um, before you actually get badged. And that's all your CQB. That's your, your, your shotgun drills, you know, taking off doors, abseiling into buildings. You're in the killing house 24 seven. Again, one safety mistake on that, you're gone as well. Mm -hmm. So um, 202 people started my course and on badging day, eight of us passed. So, um, it's very much, it's full on for six months. There's no rest period. There's no, you know, that stress of just staying in that zone, as you will know, for, for, for six months is is um, is tiring. But you get to the four-month period, and if you pass the escape and evasion, you can take a breath. You can go, right, listen, all I need to do now is really, you know, because it's a new learning phase. You need to stay on the learning curve, really take on board what's, what's been taught every single day, and do not make any safety errors. Yeah, no doubt about it. Safety and performance. Safety is always primary. And uh, just for uh, language barrier, a Bergen is a rucksack, right? What we call a rucksack here. Um, pissing is when it's raining. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then v VW is voluntary withdrawal. Uh, what else yeah. did you say that we need to <laughs> do? You that? know what? The voluntary the, withdrawal is you know, translation. Like when you guys ring the bell. You know when you ring the bell? Yeah, ding, yeah. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, and ding, they ding, put their helmets yeah. down. It's, it's, That's it's right. Like, it's like, yeah, we call it, uh, what, what they used to, I think it's changed name. I mean, it's like d never ring the bell, it's quitting, but the official term is drop upon, drop on request, D-O-R, you D-O-R, drop on request. You guys call it VW, which is voluntary VW. withdrawal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. Because at the end of the day, Clint, we're all volunteers. Um, yeah. You know, they don't really want you to pass their course. You know, you have to really, really prove yourself to them. And, you know, we've done, you know, by this stage, before we even get on selection, you know, the average soldier would have done six to 10 years. You know, there'll be a, there'll be an elite infantryman, there'll be a sniper, there'll be a recce troop operator. And even then, you know, they get on, we go on the course and, you know, it's a 90%, 95% failure rate of all the elite soldiers that are trying for selection. So it's, uh, yeah. you know, it, it is really the attention to detail, as we mentioned before, staying sharp, even when you're absolutely on the bones of your ass and you're, you know, you're trying to crawl up a ridge line, um, you know, in the jungle and you're just slipping down it because it's you're just getting tangled up everywhere. It's just making sure that either you keep that finger on that safety catch so it doesn't clip off or, yeah. you know, you don't, you don't um, ND, um, do a negligent discharge. It's, it's so many little things that you, that you just need to stay switched on to um, when you're when you're absolutely drained um, and I suppose it's super important because you know you see it happening quite more than we'd like to think you know running off an aircraft and boom someone catching up in the arse or in the leg um, off of their own dude you're like that's unacceptable you know mm -hmm. no doubt about it I agree with you 100% H&K or Glock Glock yeah I know you guys now getting into the British Special Forces, the, the current weapon of choice is what? H&Ks and Glocks? Or what are you guys, what are y'all guys rolling with these days? So the UK, so unlike the US um, military, where you all pretty much have similar weapon systems, whether you're in the Marines or the Rangers, the Green Berets, and all the way through to Tier 1, 
Ours is separate. So the, the rest, of, I call it the Green Army. The Green Army have the SA80, uh, 82, uh, which is uh, HK uh, components. Yeah. Um, and then when we go special boards, we use the C8 DeMarco. Um, and we have the six hour and the uh, and the Glock as a, a secondary weapon. Um, and I think the reason we do that is so should we be captured? We look like Americans, and it's all deniability. <laughs> Blame, <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you're seeing Americans. Your C8's yeah. like is is like a a four sixteen, right? Or a, or our M4s or our carbines? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a Canadian version of the uh, of the M4. Yeah. 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 Uh, a lesser, a lesser, a lesser weapon. A lesser, yeah. <laughs> H and K or Sig Sauer. You went with H and K, which I know is an old favorite of uh the British Special Operations guys. Yeah, I went for the Heckler and Cock because I use uh I was a big fan of the Heckler and Cock four one seven. Um the assault rifle, the uh the seven six two um version badass, of the yeah. um and it was yes it's especially for afghanistan it wasn't too long you know you could still have it it's had a you know a nice impactful 762 obviously um but it was small enough to operate through you know through compounds through buildings you know how small the cubby holds are and it still had that that impact of uh you know you knew that once that hit you you know oh, you yeah. weren't you weren't getting back up yeah, um, we. I wish we would have. We we, we kind of went with the four sixteen, you know, mm-hmm. which is the five five six version. But that, yeah, that seven six two version. That's like, you know, small gun, big round. I love it, man. That's yeah. cool. Vertex or Omega? You picked Omega. I think I know why. I picked Omega for the same reason I picked Aston Martin, really, because you know that was really. That goes back to the old days. That was the first service watch for the SBS that. I can remember in my time anyway. And also the fact I thought, what have I got in my watch collection? You know, and that was, I haven't got a Vertex. Mm-hmm. I've got a James Bond Amiga. So <laughs> I'm, de- I'm, may I, I'm, I'm like cruising down the James Bond theme, aren't I? Yeah, you are. That's all right. We yeah. all want to be well, James I am Bond. Actually, listen, I am actually the original double O. You are, Odyssey, I know. So, yeah, we, yeah, so. I saw it on Instagram. You have it up in your thing, double O. And I'm like, yeah, he's a, yeah. He's a fucking former double O guy. That's it, mate. British That's fucking it. assassin. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I. You know, one of my first watches was an Omega Seamaster as well. But um, hanging mm. out with you guys, I learned that you guys actually hand out. Uh, is it personalized or custom Omegas to your operators, or what's the story behind yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, you you can actually buy you actually buy them. They don't hand them out, but you know, if you want to, um, it used to be Omega. They've now uh, signed a deal with. I think they've got. I've got a recent one, a more recent one, which is a Bremont, which is a British, uh, a, new, a newer British brand. Uh, but yeah, if you want to buy it, you can buy one of those watches at a superb discount. They don't just hand them out. So Right. It's for SBS guys only, correct? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Correct. And then what do yeah. SAS guys, what are, what's their, is it the same? I think they, they have a swatch. <laughs> I used to collect those. <laughs> I did till I was about ten. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I, I think I think I think um, uh, yeah, Hereford have gone with either Rolex or Breitling. Yeah, sure. I can see Breitling yeah. being because it's kind of that whole aviation yeah. up in the air thing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 You're listening to Can You Survive This Podcast? Thanks for tuning in. Please make sure to subscribe, rate, and share on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Now, this one gets into more, you know, the the, the British SAS, SBS history. So, Hmm. canoe or jet boat? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Canoe. Yeah, I, mean, I was hoping you were yeah. going to say that because yeah. I, that is definitely a delineating difference. You have U.S. Navy SEALs and then you have the British SBS, which is the Special Boat mm-hmm. Service, which you are yeah. obviously uh, part of. And what I find interesting is we don't, as SEALs, we don't get into canoes or kayaks or any of that as yes. a form of infiltration. We kind of go from diving straight to our jet boats. You guys, yeah. though, have this awesome tradition and history where the canoe is a part of your selection and everything, right? Yeah, well, there was a famous operation back in the Second World War called Operation Frankton, uh, where 10 swimmer canoeists from the SBS uh, inserted into France and destroyed a lot of the shipping in the Bordeaux River. You know, of the of the 10, 
two didn't uh, successfully get off the submarine. So, um, you know, two two survived in the end and they escaped and evaded, stole the bike, got over the Pyrenees and cycled all the way down to Gibraltar. You know, it's a famous <laughs> operation so uh, cool. where they came in and just put limpet mines on these, on these, um, these vessels. You know, there's rumours that that one operation couldn't shorten the war by six months um but so it's a famous thing there's a movie called the cockle shell hero so so they inserted on these they're called klepper canoes Mm. with wooden frames and and these 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 canvas coverings they're very low profile and obviously you know going up rivers uh inserting in those days was was covert we we do it on our special forces boat corps you know we do a week of kleppering uh we do the great thing about the klepper is you can portage it. You can collapse it down and put it into two guys' bergens. You know, it's a two-man canoe, you know, then move across the land and then, and then open up again. It's it's difficult. It's hard. Uh, and we do it in the boat course just so we know that it is an option if we need it um, yeah. to do that. There was an operation um, in the last decade um, I can't really talk about where they actually used the Klepper canoe. So what that did is then kept it in service for like another 30 years. So this thing <laughs> should have been obsolete back in the Second World War. But in the current climate, you know, there's still there's still options that we can, we can use it. Yeah, I think it's super cool, man. You guys have quite the history, unlike us. We're still the new guys on the block, but man, so fucking cool. American military is not as educated on uh, foreign service medals and accomplishments as most of the world is on ours right everyone in in the world has heard of a silver star a bronze star the american awards are kind of global whereas you know other countries awards we're we're not as in tune to them but you you've received the king's badge now can you yeah what what is that what is that equivalent to and you know what how did you get that so during royal marine training um it's a nine-month process I, well i I know it's the longest infantry training in the world. Um, that's why we've got a very good reputation because before we even get to a unit, you know, we've done all the live firing, we've done multiple exercises. Um, and again, you know, there's a, it's a big failure rate in the war Marines. Um, it's, it's an extremely hard, uh, nine months and you can join straight off Sibby street. It's like joining, you know, the Navy seals apart from obviously, um, minus dev group, but it's like, you know, you're going straight into the fold. You know, right, there's no right. messing around. You either you got to stay with it or not, and um, it dates back to a prince that done the uh, commando course and who absolutely nailed it. And there's set criteria and points that um, you have to get to get up to that standard. So within each troop, um, obviously, your everything that you do your, is a point system. So you know you have to stay on the ball. You have to stay up there. And if you get over what the prince got, I think years and years ago, he was a he was a he was part of the royal family. And uh, if you get over that point system, then you're you're awarded the king's badge. And what it does, it gives you a year's seniority when you get to your unit. Um, it's a badge of 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 honor that you wear throughout all your uniform throughout your whole career. Um, but not every troop gets it. So a lot a lot of troops don't get the king's badge. So they that people just don't reach that point system or people can't get up to that, um, to, to that level. So it's, uh, once you get there, you don't know if anyone's got the King's badge. Um, and then I got pulled aside one day and, and, and told that, you know, I excelled the, uh, the point system and, um, I received, received the King's badge. So it's, uh, yeah, it's not a combat badge. It's more of a, you know, you've excelled as a, as a, as a war Marine commando. Uh, but there's a lot of emphasis on you. You know, when you get to a unit, I more or less got promoted straight away within six months, uh, you know, I got promoted to Lance Corporal and, you know, you can put a lot of noses out of joint. So I don't know if it's a good thing or, <laughs> yeah. or a bad thing, but um, no, it's definitely something that, um, that I'm proud of. Um, you know, I'm in the drill shed, my, my name's up on, on, on the board with all of these fantastic people or operators, uh, um, that have that have passed uh, passed the Royal Marine Commando training uh, course, um, so yeah, it is it's 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 a big thing for for Royal Marine. But then you you venture into the Special Forces uh, world, 
um, and that all of that disappears, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden, you're, uh, yeah, you're, you're zero. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're just you're a new that. guy. Hey, new guy. Yeah, exactly. All the shit you did before you came here, guess what? It doesn't mean dick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's the most dangerous situation you feel like you've ever been in? military or, or just in general yeah, just in general yeah. where, mainly where you've had a lot of lessons learned come out of it where you're like whoa man wish i would have done this yeah. this or this you know yeah there's one actually and it's in the prologue and epilogue of my of my book it's um you know so when i was in afghanistan we used to work with the uh you know secret service and we used to go pick up taliban agents so i used to dress up as a local taliban and drive into 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 kandahar and, and go pick up these agents so we would do this day in day out there's no point in us planning a route because every day you know when you go into the city there'd be roadblocks there'd be situations so we knew where we were going and we just had to get there and what would happen is i normally lead vehicle me and one of my uh one of the afghan sf guys would be in the front of me you know we would drive by the target second vehicle would pick up the target third would make sure we've got no follow-up you know that's that was our normal sop without giving too much away so i you know we do this day in day out this one day we went into town the, the road that we initially wanted to take was blocked so we i then got diverted to right and it was just bumper to bumper traffic and i um I just remember people it was it was a very narrow market street there's people walking down the sides of the vehicles and the people were tapping on the window and, and talking to me. And, and, I, and I would always direct them to, to, um, to Heckmat and he would do the talking. But there was a lot of attention. I, I couldn't, I don't like anything in my eyes. So I had a, lovely, a nice big black beard, no tan skin, turban, uh, looked the part, but a big beaming blue eyes. So initially <laughs> I thought, you know, I've been compromised. Yeah, and yeah. so, you know, I, I said to Heckmat, I think we've been compromised. You know, it came up over the net, so it just goes radio silent. So in my head, I'm thinking, uh, you know, the worst case scenario, as you do, orange boiler suit, CNN tonight, nine o'clock news, <laughs> this guy. <laughs> so in my head, I'm thinking about the IA drill, the immediate action drill, what I need to do. Obviously, I can't divulge that on this show. So, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about that. And, and the initial thing is to grab the weapon under my seat, which is a, a MP5 Kurt, so it's got no barrel, and you just empty the magazine 30 rounds into the windscreen gives yourself time to grab your weapon and then get on your flip-flops and start heading back to camp, which was about 18 miles as the crow flies from from this point. So here's <laughs> me in my head, you know, going over this situation, you know, planning it out. And just as I was about, you know, during this whole situation, the, the vehicles are slowly edging forward. So HQ on, said on your call, you you make the decision. So, okay, as I was just about to grab it, the second, luckily the second vehicle come by uh, around the corner. And my friend, um, Ads, he came up over the net and he's like, stop, stop, stop. So straight away, you just drop everything. You know, your, your whole body just freezes and I'll yeah. drop the weapon. Um, and he says, your, your turbine's caught in the door. So for me, it was like a real life lesson, how I misread a situation that I knew I shouldn't have been there. My senses were so heightened. Yeah. thinking the worst case scenario when in fact people have been generally nice and trying to help me. Um, so that's yeah. the real life for me. And in, in the fact, you know, there wasn't any explosions. It wasn't any shooting. It was just, you know, and I always say it when I do uh, lectures on security and things like that, you know, don't run into a situation, just step back, yeah. have a look. And that's what I didn't do. I was so immersed in it and uh, I knew that I shouldn't, been there so my senses were heightened so i wasn't making the right the right decisions i love that story because it supports what i put in uh, the first little book i ever did was escape the wolf and it's an awareness book and in there i would talk about like anytime you arrive into a new area new country you're going to be oversensitized your brain and everything is going to be trying to pay attention to everything because everything in front of you is new and you're gonna think that Everything is after you, right? You're going to see ghosts. You're going to see goblins. You're going to see everything that you think you can see <laughs> in that environment when the reality is it's nothing. It's just a new culture, a new place. So you got to almost step back from all of that uh, temporary paranoia 
you know, which yeah. and and just kind of drive forward, but keep your wits about you at the same time. But man, that's a yeah. that's a fucking great example of what uh, I've talked about in there. For those of you listening, mostly uh, my my U.S. folks, um, SAS is a show, and this show is incredible. It emulates uh, lightly the. SAS SBS selection process. And for those of you catching up, SAS SBS is, you know, the tier one forces uh, in England. And those guys go through a similar selection as any of us Navy SEALs or any other special operation guys here in the United States. And the show does this great job um, really putting the, the, the recruits through 14 days of kind of the sort of type of atmosphere that any regular Joe that signs up for the military and wants to be special, they have to go through this, this selection process. And so the the UK one, correct me, Ollie, if, if I'm incorrect, was really a, you, you guys took on the average Joe, whereas in Australia, it's celebrities, right? Yeah, we did. I mean, the UK one was first targeted at, first of all, it was just men. So, you know, it was, it was true authenticity of the selection process in the UK. So, yeah. which at that time was only open to men. Um, and then we sort of evolved into opening that up to uh, both genders. Um, and, and then we sort of evolved into the celebrity version of the show. Um, obviously, SAS Australia, we, you know, we have done a, a non-celebrity version but the main sort of primary um, uh, show is really about celebrities. And I do have to say that I love the celebrity one more than I do the non-celebrity. And the reason for that is because it absolutely shows and typifies the process and how it works on special forces selection. And that is for the viewer looking in all these celebrities, we have a perception Everyone has a perception of who this person is. The media creates a perception of that person. So we then build how we perceive this per each individual celebrity. But then it shows how the process absolutely works because all the way through that process, it delivers a totally different person at the back end. Yeah, it does. And that is absolutely what happens on selection. Right. You know, people get such a, a, an internal view of who they really are. The ego's wiped out the way. You know, they're put into a, um, a, a put into a sort of theatre where they feel where they feel vulnerable. So their thoughts, feelings, actions, and reactions become organic and raw. They don't get to design the perfect outcome, which, especially as a celebrity, they're always designing a perfect outcome to make them look good. Mm -hmm. So it shows that process working, and I can really relate to that. And I'm sure you can, Clint, on yeah, selection. Yeah you are a different person by the time you come out the back end. No doubt about it. I think you just hit like all those important features of a selection mm -hmm. and, and no doubt like those, those recruits, those celebrities, um, and you, yeah, you nailed it. They're used to, to a scripted life. And when they show yeah. up to SAS, it is completely unscripted. There is, mm -hmm. uh, it's the four of us and the, you know, 20 or 17 or whatever the number is of them. We're mm. all living together. It's real. You don't even really yeah. see cameramen or audio folks. No one's saying cut, repeat that line, please. You know, it is just raw and real. And that was the big surprise for me, you know, within 24 hours, I was like, holy shit, we're, it's really the four of us actually running all this crap. <laughs> like yeah, that, was, yeah. that was the impressive and actually the coolest part of the deal was yeah. knowing that and, and being a part of it. And it was just, and I mean, fuck man, we had so much fun just, yeah. just, uh, getting through each of those days, those long days didn't even seem long at all. You know, no. uh, hanging out with you and Aunt and Dean. I mean, it was just a, an awesome experience. Daniel Craig, Sean Connery, of course, putting both James Bonds head to head. I'd say Sean Connery yeah, because yeah. you know I grew up watching you know watching that film, you know the the Bond series really, mm -hmm. religiously. And I think that was over my most influential years, and he's left us now, but God bless him. I do love Daniel Craig. I think he's absolutely brilliant. Um, but, yeah, I've, I've got to do it out of respect for the man, uh, yeah. Sean Connery. Yeah, so. Yeah, same for me. J 
James Bond overall is a big influence, I think, for any any guy in our age group, or heck, even maybe even the new guys mm-hmm. uh, that wanted to go into special operations. I mean, there's always that spec ops <laughs> flair to yeah. any James Bond movie, especially the Daniel Craig ones. I mean, that is yeah. that is they added that little bit of John Wick to James mm, Bond yes. and turned it him is, into yeah. this just lethal mm. motherfucker, you know? Yeah. Which uh, Sean Connery was more etiquette protocol gentlemanly, right? And, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah 100% no, womanizer. More, uh, chivalry. There's a lot more chivalry <laughs> there in, um, you go. in chivalry. Sean's David. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, did Sean Connery ever get a sir in front of his name? Is it, or no? Did he, did he ever get a knight? I think he... If not, he certainly should have. Yeah. Huh. Now, they gave Tony Blair one, so they should bloody give him one. <laughs> no, no one wanted that to happen. <laughs> That's pretty funny. We did McLaren versus Aston Martin. You picked the Aston Martin. Yeah, Aston Martin is, you know, if I, I'm not into supercars, to be honest, because I always have to have a practical reason for everything and a purpose. Mm-hmm. All of my cars, all the car, cars I've got, I've got a functional reason why I've got that car. So for me to have a sports car is like, I just, I just, you know, is it for ego? Is that why people get them? You know? So for me, it's like, but if I had any car, you know, just that Aston Martin would do it for me. You know, I I was lucky enough to get one lent to me by Aston Martin for my wedding. And uh, it was incredible. And I've driven a McLaren as well, but which is an amazing bit of kit. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's that good old British, you know? Yeah. It's that heritage, isn't it? You know, it's like the the, the old James Bond yeah. um, heritage. So it's it's more authentic, I believe. Yeah, it does. It matches you with you know, with the guns and the headlights and all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I think Aston Martins are like you know they've got this uh, they've got all the luxury and sport crushed into this badass yeah. design. I mean, you can't beat the um, lines of an Aston Martin. Those lines nah, are beautiful, nah. right? Yeah. Now, okay, this is going to be your biggest challenge is your hypothetical survival scenario that we built just for you, okay? Wow. Now, I'm yes. going to tell you ahead of time. There's 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 right answers and wrong answers, but the only one that mm-hmm. matters is our answer, okay? So you can okay. rationalize all fucking day long and it doesn't matter, <laughs> Dean, okay? You're either going to be right or wrong according to uh, the the story maker, all right? So, are you ready? Yes, please. Okay, here we go. We will be right back after the break. All right, so you're in a foreign country on a job for a, for a very private high net worth client okay uh the city is unnamed but it's densely populated and urban a whole lot of new wealth but massive poverty okay sound familiar uh there are dense clusters of large new buildings and tenants all crammed into a very you know confined area you've been flown into the city one day early uh, before your actual security gig okay you're at a hotel it's not very nice okay um but it's the night before your job you're winding down kind of taking a moment before you start your your gig the next day and by the way how do you wind down you get into hotel do you have any like you know do you have a routine when you get into hotel rooms or I, I don't really. My my wind down is when when it, when the job is over. Yeah, and I'm out. Of no, that's yeah. my wind down. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's got to keep stay alert the whole time. Right. Um, so it's the night before the job starts. Okay, now you're kind of relaxing, and uh, you know maybe prepping is probably the better thing we all do. Is you're prepping for your yeah. next day, and uh, you hear banging at your door. Okay, and someone shouts, "This is the police." You're under arrest for robbing those banks. Open the door. Okay? So, first question. All right? And now, if you were sitting here in person, but because you came to Dallas and didn't tell me, and now you're in L.A., and now we're doing the show, which is bad on you to come to Dallas. (laughs) um, On the screen here, we've got your first question. So, do you keep the door closed and sneak out the window, or B, request that they hold their credentials up at the peephole? Um, I'm the B because I don't want to, I don't want to inflate the situation. But what I always do and I always have with me when I'm on trips is is a a door wedge, a 99 cents door wedge because you don't know who has access to these hotel cards. Yeah. So I always stick that behind the door. Hell just yeah. Just in case they did. Yeah. Just in case they did have their own 
swipe engines. But I, I don't want to inflate. I don't want to. I know that I haven't robbed anyone, so I don't want to sort of uh, inflame the situation. <laughs> right. You don't want to fire them up, and I do the same. It's a. <laughs> I think that's a security a little trick in the security world that us security guys know is I carry four of the little wooden wedges that mm-hmm. come in the. Uh, uh, it's a Slim Jim kit. I don't know if you've seen okay. those. To Jimmy, the Jimmy, the door Oof. open, you have these long reach tools. And they have the perfect, like, wooden wedges that you can get through security. You don't have to worry because it's not metal mm. and all that. And then, you know, you can do uh, one or two at the top, two into the, on the lock side, and one at the bottom. And, you know, right. it's going to keep people out for sure. Yeah, that's, yeah, a, great, yeah. that's a great point, man. Um, and you are correct, B, right? Since you, you haven't done anything wrong, there's no need to run and be arrested or fling. I mean, that's just going to make you look guilty. Um, they're two officers. They're in proper uniform. They flash their credentials. So everything looks legit at this point. So good job. All right. So next, do you tell them they've made a mistake and to go away? Or B, you know, crack the door, give in a little bit. You've got the lock on the door, but you can crack it just a little bit and uh confirm everything yeah i'd, I'd go i'd go b i think um I'd, I'd wait to see what their initial reaction was from from me asking for the credentials and if they've shown me then yeah i'll, I'll crack the door again it's trying to trying yeah. to not inflame that inflame that situation but obviously conscious that you know you need to react if need be right and i think you follow some of the same principles when you were in the military there's a big difference like in the military for me in a lot of these countries i was operating in i didn't pull over for police i didn't open fucking doors for police police were basically equivalent to bad guys but as a civilian you got to kind of treat things a whole lot different because you don't have (laughs) you know you don't don't have the 800 pound gorilla of the united states military you know (laughs) backing you up one border away you know what i mean Yeah. yeah um so yeah, cracking the door and kind of, it's kind of a give, right? It's kind of like giving them a little bit of something to keep them yeah. satisfied. Yeah. True. Um, so B, yes, correct. All right. So next one, the police ask if they can come in and ask you some questions. So A, let them in or B, tell them to come back with a warrant and shut the door. <laughs> <laughs> you're in someone else's country so <laughs> yeah yeah it's a tough one hmm. I, I mean, I mean, if there was a third option i'd ask <laughs> if we could go in, into the public lobby and just chat there in, in yeah 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 it's um, a great point yep again i'd uh again they're not going to come back with a warrant i've worked in some of these places you know to, you know yeah. again try and try and i'll go with a hey, yeah let them let them <laughs> And yes, A is correct. Um, and I'm with you because you and I both know the legal systems really only work in one, two, maybe three countries on this fucking planet. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah, rest, yeah, yeah. They're, it's corrupt. I mean, it's corrupt. The, yeah. You know, it's semi-permissive if you're lucky. And mm. the, the law enforcement certainly... Uh, bribery and taking cash yeah. and all that is a, is there is like a primary form of income for these folks, yeah. right? Yeah, true. Well, I, I sort of learned as well, especially like going around, because I worked all over Africa and, and the Middle East, is that the laws that we have in UK and America are for UK and America. You right. can't enforce them in, in another country. Yeah. So people used, people used to ask me questions about buying weapons on the black market. It's legal. I've done nothing illegal there. You know, it's it's all legal in that country. Yeah, if yeah. I did it in the UK, it'd be totally legal. Yeah. So yeah, you, you, you need to understand and that's and as you touched on before you go to these countries, you understand their cultures, their laws and things like that. So you don't get tripped up as well. Um, and you understand that is that is normal. Is it normal in the US and is it normal in the UK, but it is normal in wherever we are. At the right. Moment. In those countries, you know, they don't call them black markets. They're called open air markets. You walk up and you buy whatever the fuck you want. It's not hotel until, manager. Yeah, it's not until you leave the country, you go, oh, yeah, those, I guess, were considered black markets, but they're just open air markets. They're like a souk, yeah. a souk of weapons. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm with you, man. That's good stuff. Uh, so, yeah, you, you let them in. All right. They tell you that they need your passport. Okay. This is where, you know, it's man. This is yeah. what, this is the part that bugs me even in, you know, yeah. in real life. You know, anybody who needs my passport. So they say, hey, we need your passport and you got to come with us. And so yeah. do you A, refuse and request to call your embassy or B, mm-hmm. 
cooperate with the police and go ahead and, you know, give them your passport. So what I always do, and I do it when I do my travel security to people, I, when I, before I go anywhere, I take photocopies of my passport, I take photocopies of my yellow fever cards yeah. and things like that. So when you have, when people ask you, especially some of these hotels you go to around the world, oh, we need to take your passport to get it scanned. Well, here, I've already got a photocopy, so that, that should do the job. So you never lose sight of your passport. So that was what I would do in this situation. Yeah. I have my, I keep my passport on me, but I would give them my photocopy. Because then you've actually agreed to what they've asked. Yep. You've given them what they need. Yep. And without upsetting them. So I always have photocopies for those scenarios. Yeah. Okay. I like it. And that's all great points. And I think it's stuff that even if you go to um, – the state department.gov here in the United States, yeah. you, know, you go there, yeah. it's going to tell you all these things. It really does. It's, mm. a, it's a great, mm. it's a great source. You know, another great source of information is if you're going to, let's say whatever that country is, go to yeah. that country's embassy websites. Every single one of them have embassy websites. Now we tend yeah. to go, Oh, I'm just going to look at American stuff, even though I'm traveling yeah. to Egypt. It's like, no, go to the Egyptian consulate website. And they will tell you exactly what yeah. you, the do's and don'ts, uh, which Very is a, it's a it's a much better source of information. So yeah, that's good yeah. stuff. You feel everything start to shake, okay? Do you a get up and rush out of the home, or b stay in the house? Now there's a lot of protocols that come with earthquakes that you may or may not know about, but uh, you're gonna uh, a get up and run outside, or are you b gonna stay inside? Depends how violent the shake is. Um, <laughs> I would say that I, the first initial shake, I'd probably stay put. Um, so, you know, I, you know, I'd stay put, assess it, and then, then go from there. There you go. Look at you. So, yes, you want to stay in the house. Um, there's a lot of common misconceptions when dealing with earthquakes and the protocol that come with it. But rushing outside, especially at night, you know, you don't know what you're running into. And... The structure you're inside of is going to protect you more than probably uh, whatever's falling outside. Um, so, yeah, you don't want to put yourself at risk, especially at night. Um, so good job. Yes, B, stay in the house. All right, next. Do you, A, lay down next to a sturdy piece of furniture, uh, like a big couch or a table, or B, go stand in a door frame? It's a tough one. I would one. say um, I would say A because if any anything was to fall, then that sturdy bit of furniture would hopefully protect you yeah. from any. Good job. Yes, A. Another misconception because you'll hear about it here in the states is go stand in a door frame, but unfortunately, door, door frames are not like reinforced. They're just a door frame, and uh, there's nothing that's really going to protect you. But a couch laying like you know horizontally up against it uh, will hopefully break the fall of other debris because the number one killer in an earthquake is falling debris. Uh, so you want to basically take cover, uh, if you will. All right. So the initial shake has stopped. All right. So now do you a stay put and assist this, assess, take a moment and kind of look, listen and feel right. Or B get up and rush out of the house. A. Hey, you are. Yes. You are correct, sir. The leading cause of death, obviously, is the falling debris. You want to stay. You want to assess. You want to take a moment and make sure you've got your wits about you and you're looking around at what the condition of what's around you, you know. Um, so awareness is key. You're about to exit the home when there's an, another aftershock, right? They have these, uh, these post-earthquake tremors that you definitely have to be on high alert for. Um, but this time you tumble, you fall over, and some debris and rubble kind of falls down on top of you. All right. So you're covered in, in this rubble. All right. Uh, do you A, use all your strength and push the rubble and debris off to escape, or B, slowly crawl and make your way towards whatever light that is, you know, that you can actually see and slowly remove debris? Um, I would say it would be B. Yeah. Slowly. You yeah. Know, take it slow. You don't want to be rushing up. You might be rushing into made more mayhem. That's right. Uh, the slow movement, in a, especially with fallen debris, is really important when you test. If you have to move something 
and you you kind of grab it. Let's say it's a boulder. Let's say it's a pipe. Whatever it is, and you you grab it, and you realize there's weight on it. Then you don't want to touch it any longer, right? You don't want to muscle that because you could pull that that piece of furniture, that pipe, that rock, and all of a sudden more stuff. It could be load-bearing. You don't want to be messing around with load-bearing stuff. So you want to touch it. If it's loose, move it. If it's stuck, leave it alone and then create a pathway out. And this applies not just to earthquakes. I mean, this is you find yourself uh, in terrorist events where explosives are used and the building has fallen. Anything, anytime anything has fallen, you want to be cautious on how you move things because you could just make it worse. So strong winds make difficult to control the vehicle. Visibility is low. Um, and visibility basically gets to whiteout condition. Do you A, safely pull over the car on the shoulder of the road, or B, uh, pull the car onto a median? Onto what? A median, like a sidewalk or onto an elevated side of the road. Put it on the shoulder, which is yeah. level with the road, or do you you know, bump over and get on top of something else. I'd go for the, for B. B? Let's see what this thing says. Uh, A, pull over on the shoulder. Let's see why. Pull Mm. over as in make your way to a hotel or a gas station. Pulling into a median is dangerous uh, because your car could get permanently stuck for the night. Um, In this scenario, conditions are too bad to make it to the gas station or anywhere but the side of the road. So you safely pull over to the shoulder of the road. Do you, A, stay in the car, or B, set up flares? Flares as in, do you want people yeah so you can be seen obviously because it's white out yeah, condition yeah. well yeah. Not, not like a pair of trousers or something <laughs> yeah yeah that's another word i see that's why i always do this flares or trousers is that another word for pants flares yeah flares yeah flares. <laughs> see, I learned flares. Something. you guys have all these fucking words i think what the brits did when they came to america is they dumbed english down a bit because i don't yeah. know any of the brit words it's so funny yeah probably a good thing um i, w- I would stay in the up to a certain point, you know, I would stay in the car to see how conditions fare. Yeah, that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see here. Let's make sure. Stay in the car. No, set up flares so people can see you. It's whiteout conditions. We were both wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah, you want to be visible so that another car doesn't run into you. Mm-hmm. You're trying to basically broadcast, hey, I'm here. I'm on the side of the road stranded so you you have those flares or you know those light up you call torch those torches yeah you know, that that you throw on the ground and it makes a big red you know uh, yeah, flame yeah, yeah. and they burn really slow those those things not pants <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right that's funny thanks for coming on the show buddy i do appreciate it. i hope to be seeing you soon and i know we'll be talking soon uh and like i always say keep it simple because crisis will complicate the rest and be safe out there Thank you, buddy. It's been amazing to be part of the show. And uh, yeah, I hope to see you soon. Can You Survive This Podcast is a production of Calvary Audio and iHeartMedia. Recorded live from a secure location here in Dallas, Texas. Produced by Brandon Morgan, Jeff Apple, and Clint Emerson. Executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunetti. For Calvary Audio, I'm Clint Emerson.